Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today we have another returning guest who appeared back in June 2019, which was episode 30. Daniel Major is the CEO of Govi X Uranium, her mineral resources company focused on the exploration and development of its African uranium properties in Nigeria, um, its mine permitted Matanga project in Zambia, and its exploration follow project in Mali. Um, Dan, Daniel is a Campbell School Mines Mining Engineer graduate, um, obviously many years ago, um, and has okay. been at the <laughs> and has been at the uh, um, at the helm of GoVX for the past nine years, developing the company in a position to become a uranium producer in the coming years. Um, and he's here today to give us an update on the company um, and about the UN, uranium market in general. So that's welcome, Daniel, to the podcast. How are you doing, Daniel? I'm doing well. I didn't realise I was starting to look that old. <laughs> you had to point it out. <laughs> I, that, that wasn't that wasn't my intention, but uh... <laughs> I'm just going to say it's the lighting. <laughs> but yeah, just obviously wanted to. Um, we get obviously a lot of uh, guys from the Campbell School Mines on the podcast. So I just wanted to uh, just wanted to uh, put that out there. Um, Thank you very much. <laughs> so, as I mentioned, we we done a podcast just over two years ago. So, um, for those that are listening, appreciate if you can obviously um, go back and revisit that episode. Um, but for those that haven't listened to that episode, um, Daniel, one of you can just give us a quick overview of your background, um, and then tell us a little bit about GoVX. Yeah, um, my background, as you say, I'm Camel School of Mines um, a while back. Um, my first job was actually a pit supervisor at the Rossing Uranium Mine. So I turned up at a university, ended up there. Everybody had taken the desk jobs already. So I was sent down into the pit as a, a pit supervisor after a couple of weeks training, which was yeah really interesting to suddenly go from being a little student who suddenly has got three big excavators and the trucks and bulldozers to haul around. And of course, it was all done in uh, Afrikaans and Fanagalo, and I have neither. So uh, I used to take quite a lot of abuse over the radio, pit radios um, for my lack of Afrikaans or his very bad pronunciation when I did try and use it. Um, but since then, yeah, I've worked around the world. Um, I've worked in multiple commodities. I've worked in mainly Africa, but I have worked in Russia. I've worked in South America and Canada as well. I've worked in open pit and underground. Um, I spent seven years as an equity analyst. I was a, a rated equity analyst for many years as well, but I just got fed up of writing research and the equity analyst world changed with all the sort of MIFID rules and it became boring. So I had to come back and become an engineer again. So uh, 2012 came back to Africa, which I find uh, a great place, great continent. I mean, all our jurisdictions are different, but they're all great jurisdictions. And just as a generalization, I thoroughly enjoy working in Africa. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you just give us a snapshot of um, obviously GoVX. You've been there since, I think, 2012. Um, so, yeah, just wanted to give us a snapshot. And then obviously I've got a number of questions that I want to um, ask you. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we are a uranium developer. Uh, we have three projects in three different mining um, jurisdictions. So we've got the Madawella project in Niger that's fully mine permitted. It, we're, it's our keystone project we're moving forward. Market for uranium we'll, we'll probably come back to is improving. Um, so we're pushing that one to final feasibility and financing. We've got the Matanga project or also mine permitted. We are have some infill drilling on that one to do because we expanded the resource and have a large inferred resource that needs to be infilled before we can move it into FS. Um, moving that one forward. And then Falaya is a really fascinating polymetallic with uranium, copper, silver, and gold, which has a mineral resource, but is actually turning more into a, a seriously interesting uh, exploration play. So we got different projects in different parts of a pipeline, all in mining jurisdictions. So target to actually start producing uranium from about 2025 onwards. Okay. Um, obviously, you've been operating in Africa for many years, um, and your most developed project, Madawella, um, yep. sits in Niger, um, which is a country I suppose not many people associate with being a uranium producer. Um, can you give us some background uh, around the country and, I suppose, um, the obviously the country as a uranium producer? Yeah, I, I think the third, first point is most people don't know where Niger is, uh, <laughs> who haven't actually got a close relationship with Africa anyway. But no, uh, Niger started producing uranium in 1971. Uh, the first of its two uranium mines started up. It, for a long, long time, was the fourth largest uranium producing nation in the world. Um, it's produced about 8% of the world's uranium since then. Uh, predominantly, the, uh, the French mining company, which keeps changing its name, was Kojima, then went to Arriva and is now Arano, um, uh, was the primary producer there um, and has been exporting. And for us, that's quite useful because, of course, uh, they've laid all the ground stones in there for all the infrastructure that we can leverage off. There's trained people, there's an industry developed and trained around uranium mining. Um, and one of those two mines has actually recently closed uh, at the end of its life. And so, you know, there's a good opportunity to go forward for, for new jobs and, and skilled personnel for ourselves. Niger um, is a very large country, uh, part of the Sahara Desert. Um, actually, if you get, I noticed last time I was up there about a couple of weeks ago, on the southern part of our property after the rains, we've still got grass. On the north end of our property, there's not a blade of grass to be seen. So we're kind of at that junction on the, the, the real start of the desert um, when you get into it. Um, but it's a country that's had democratic elections for many years. Um, we just recently had another one in December last year. Um, it is um, focused heavy on um, oil. Um, uranium uh, are the major exports uh, going out of the um, part of the Sahel region. Okay. And what, what is the country like in other commodities? Um, obviously, like you mentioned, uranium is probably their, their leading leading commodity. But what about other commodities across, um, across the country? It does have other commodities. I mean, there's a gold mine that's been running for a while, Samara Hill to the south. Um, there's a big gold area up on the northeast, up towards the Chad border, uh, which has been running predominantly as a sort of artisanal gold operation, but there are a number of gold companies starting to look at. I mean, I saw photographs coming out of there of people pulling out nuggets the size of fingernails. Um, so, you know, very interesting geology. Um, there are other things like phosphates, etc. So Niger as a country has a lot of potential still and still as a uranium. I mean, we're not the only uranium explorer developer in the country. There are others 
um, pushing forward. I mean, it went quiet for a while while the uranium price went very low, but now we're starting to see them coming back again. Um, so, yeah, it's a country with great potential. I said there's the oil basin over on the Chad border as well. Um, and the government now at the moment, and it's just the poorest country in the world almost, uh, it's very much focused on infrastructure, very much focused on agriculture and education. So those are the things that we also try and support where we can in our regions. So certainly education, uh, water, um, uh, protection of children are all the things that we focus on in this year from a CSR point of view. Yeah. Um, and looking at your sort of more flagship uh, project, um, Maduela, yeah. um, how is the infrastructure around that particular site? Well, as I say, and this is kind of really where having a, an Arano being there for almost 60 years before us really helped. So there's a big coal-fired power station to the south of us at a place called Sonichar. Sonichar's got about 60 years of coal, uh, and that feeds the grid. So there's there's about 20, 26 meg of power on that grid coming from there. And that's been feeding up into the Arlet region where we are. So there's two towns, Arlet to Nakukan. About 200,000 people living there. So there's a power grid coming in. There's a road which has been used by Arano, you know, since they started to export. And so that whole infrastructure of exporting uranium is, is well understood. Water is not an issue. We actually hit water 40 meters below the surface, pretty well all over our property. But for our, us, just from an ESG point of view, obviously, because we've got coal power, you know, that doesn't mean we're just going to accept it. So we're we're in a country where the sun rises pretty well every day at six o'clock in the morning and goes down at six o'clock every evening. Uh, and it's always sunny, um, you know. So things like solar hybrid, uh, we're now starting to look at as part of our FS as well to try and bring down our commitment, you know. Uh, it, but you still need some backup power, um, whether you're doing diesel or coal. We've got to figure out what the best options are and cost and efficiency, et cetera, to do that because, you know, it's not like we're next to a Texaco station or we've got to truck stuff hundreds of miles to get to us and that has an impact as well. Um, water, we're looking at ways of reducing our water consumption considerably. While there's a lot of it, doesn't mean you need to use it. Um, so see what we can do, looking at some technologies to kind of dry mill, et cetera, to try and reduce the amount of water uh, that we consume. Yeah. And, and what about in terms of infrastructure? What about the roads and civil and also port facilities? Uh, well, that might be close yeah. By? So, I mean, this is the advantage of having had a Nerano again, because they have been exporting everything out of Cotonou and Benin. And so that port is a recognized port for the transshipment of uranium. Um, it all the facilities are there. The, the regulatory requirements are all sorted out for years and years and years. And so there's an expectation to go out of there. Um, everything has been coming in and out by road. I mean, the roads are a little rough, I have to say, in parts. And But the government currently is in a program of infrastructure upgrade, and they're already started on that main road. I mean, it goes all the way through to Algiers, down into Nigeria. Um, the Nigerian government as well are currently in the program of producing a new railway link, which goes from Kano in Nigeria up to Maradi in um, Niger, that would allow us access to all the Niger, uh, Nigerian ports as well as by rail. So that's also, you, you're starting to see here the benefits of ECOWAS and the African Trade Agreement. So Africa is slowly and steadily trying, it, one of the problems of the African Trade Agreement is the lack of connective infrastructure. And so the African countries are trying to interlink themselves better um, 
to allow that free trade to work. Uh, I mean, and the problem is, for example, like shipping, most of the shipping is heading either to China, North America or the US. There's very little internal shipping. Uh, things are tending to sail past. Um, so that's something that all of the governments are trying to work towards is get infrastructure interlinked so you can benefit from the, the free trade agreements that have been signed. Yeah. Um, could you talk about some of the challenges and opportunities you're facing at um, Madawella? Um, I mean, the challenges are mainly technical challenges. So it's all about, you know, we are in the middle of things take a time to just move things around. It's going to be one of our biggest challenges is just purely logistics. There's about 2,000 kilometers from um, Cotonou to the mine site. So that's going to be the, the largest challenge we deal with just to make sure we can get everything in and out again. Um, but on the other side, you know, there's a lot of local companies. Uh, we have a strong commitment towards local anyway. Uh, since 2009, we've been running all of our projects on a local labor basis. So I have no expatriates working in any of the countries. So they're all local. And I think that's important, not just for local employment, but I think it's important from an ownership point of view. You know, it needs to see, people need to see that these are local companies for the benefit of the local economy. And yes, they're owned by a Canadian company, but, you know, we want the local people to drive it and have ownership and push it forward. Yeah. Um, obviously, you mentioned education um, in one of the previous questions. Um, how? What is the government doing to, um, I suppose, help you or help the, in, the mining industry in regards to education in Nigeria? Uh, the government, yeah, it has a massive program to try and improve. The, the problem they have, in, and, and again, Niger is an interesting one. It's a bit... It, kind of like described the whole of Africa, no two parts of Niger are the same. I mean, if you look at any map of Niger, 90% of the population live in 10% of the ground. And so where we are is literally, uh, you, you struggle to find anybody. They're so spread out and they're fairly nomadic. Uh, and so the government does try, but re teacher retention is one of the biggest problems. Um, so we're, we're in discussions at the moment with a, a very large international NGO. Uh, we've realized that um, we're a bunch of mining engineers and geologists and know absolutely nothing about education. <laughs> you know, most of us struggle to get through our degrees, let alone education <laughs> after that. Um, so, you know, the strategy really is trying to leverage those skills and, and bring that to bear and, uh, and, and leverage up the dollar uh, that we've got. But we work with the government. Um, not only in Niger and Zambia, we've done exactly the same thing. So, you know, we're, the problem with the mining industry is you can get stuck with this whole let's just build infrastructure thing. You know, we can build a school. We can, those are easy. Uh, it's how to say, all right, I can. I built a school, but let's make sure we now use the school for whatever it's going to be used for. And that is where we're going in with the NGOs in Zambia, going with the Ministry of Education more. Um, is really helpful to kind of get that engagement. So in Zambia, we always add a teacher's house to the school when we build it because that means there's some accommodation directly for the teacher or the medic in the case of a clinic. In Zambia as well, we realized that for half the day, the schools weren't being used. So we started adult education classes, um, which have gone, you know, far exceeded our expectations. They were kind of one little school wanted to do it. And now we've got three schools who are full uh, of adults coming who just didn't get the education, particularly women, uh, coming back to relearn how to write and which are all very positive. Um, and you mentioned, obviously, uh, teachers. Where do the teachers come from? Are they local or do they come in from uh, yeah. international? 
No, they're, they're local. Uh, I, I mean, every even the um, NGOs predominantly tend to go local as well. So the teachers are all local teachers uh, trained in either Zambia, Mali, or Niger. Um, you know, and you've got to understand the cultural differences as well on all of these things. Um, everything is very different. So yeah, they're all local. Um, we're working on you know how best to to retain the teachers where they need to be. Uh, I mean, some of these places are far flung, um, and you know, teachers. They're not the, the you know if, if you're not growing up in that area and used to the culture or whatever they're pretty hard places to be, so you have to find ways of retaining the teachers in those places and, and getting the commitment, and a large part of that for people is you know the commitment to having the facilities that they need to provide the education. Um, so you know we're now we have done some infrastructure stuff. We're now focused on in Niger on an area around the town of, of Gugaram and working on a a scaling up program. So start with one school. And then once we've got that one going, figure out how to move up to the next school and the next school and the next school. Let's just get the system working first. Uh, our biggest problem in Niger is that they are, people are incredibly nomadic. So just because there's a school doesn't mean there's anyone near it for about six months of the year because they will move somewhere else. And so we're trying to start with a centralized school, the bigger of one of them all, and then gradually work out how to marry the schooling system with the nomadic lifestyle um, at the same time. Okay. Um, you recently put out a press release about Matanga uh, project in Zambia, where you had the positive uh, drilling results from the Dibui East deposit. Um, yep. Can you give us an update on that project? Yeah, did we? Um, Matanga's a, a, a lovely little project. It's very simple. It's an open pit heat leach operation. Uh, we acquired it from two different people and put the project together into one big project. It's an interesting one because we've gone kind of um, a hub and spoke approach rather than a single processing plant. So we have a centralized processing plant and different heat leaches for each of the deposits, where depending on where they are. Um, there was a lot of prior work done by both of the previous owners who'd taken their separate projects into to an FS level. Uh, however, subsequent to that, there's very large resources, about 45% of the total resource was added at Dibuis, but it was put in as an inferred category. And and of course, you know anyone who, who follows or knows there are industries, you can't take an inferred into a, a feasibility study. So we have to bring it up to an indicated category by infilling it. So that's what we were doing there. We were actually just drilling it out. But we only did a third of it because we wanted to see whether the, the variability closed down and whether we got consistency on the resource by infilling the drilling um, to 100 by 50. And uh, certainly the result that we put out shows that we got, considering the, the sparsity of holes that were there before, uh, and the inferred resource that was de designed around that, it's an incredibly good fit. Uh, and in fact, we seem to have a lot of areas down at the base um, to the sides, even got a new layer came in. So there, it does look like a potential for a, a bigger resource to be defined there. But you know, we'll only know the answer to that once the geologists get their hands on it and we finish all the drilling. Uh, so that'll be the plan for next year is to go and do the rest of the drilling. Okay. Um, obviously, you're going into Mali uh, now. Uh, can you give us an idea on what the plan is for the Mali operations um, and what are some of the challenges and opportunities that you're going to be uh, facing? Yeah, not, not a problem. But yeah, Philaea's um, kind of been the sort of somewhat of an orphan behind the two big projects for quite a while. It started as a uranium project for, by a company called Rockgate, who uh, was acquired by Denison, and we acquired off them. And so there's a 30 million pound uranium resource on there. And it's this flat lying uranium deposit um, in a sandstone. 
but you've got a beryllium with another uh, laterite layer sitting on the top. So you've got this sort of sandwich where all the uranium ends up, but it's very structurally driven. Uh, and we were like, well, you know, we can't see where these structures are coming from because it's clear that the guys didn't really know what they were looking for. So we went back to first principles on it and said, okay, if we're going to keep drilling for this, then we better figure out where it's going to be. And also it's got copper, it's got silver. Um, and then we also realized it's on trend to big gold lines as well. So Sibaya, Western Sibaya. And so we got gold trends coming on. So one of the licenses called Madini, has no potential for uranium just because the geology is different there. We only have beryllium. So we did some sampling and drilling there and showed that the gold trend actually comes down through. So we know gold continues in under the uranium deposit as well. So we've gone back to IP, um, done a lot of initial work on that, which has come back some very interesting results. So we now can see a much better view of where the structural trends are going. They were not where the other guys thought they were looking. Uh, but more importantly, we've come up with this sort of large IP chargeability anomaly sitting directly online with the structure, the, the major fault, which is seen to be the driver. And on top of that, it's right underneath the uranium deposit as well. Uh, last year, we did some work on some drill cores at the bottom of them. The guys before had stopped um, sampling at the uranium deposit and had not bothered to sample at the bottom 20, 30, 40 meters, depending on how long the drill core was. And we were finding chalcopyrite in the bottom of these drill cores uh, that were never assayed. Um, so clearly, there is potential for polymetallic minerals to be below. So for us now, it's a case of, okay, well, let's go back. Now we've got some drill targets, and we're doing some more work with a company called Computational Geoscience, which uh, initial work shows some two really big structures already, with even just in the small area we've mapped. Uh, so we're going to drill down into that sort of deeper target and figure out, is this the source for the uranium and the copper and the silver? And if so, you know, maybe we shouldn't be drilling for these flat-lying uranium deposits because the real deposit is right down below. And, you know, my chairman, Govan Freeland, will kind of say, well, the only other deposit in the world that has got copper, silver, and uranium in it is Olympic Dam. Um, you know, it's the only one that kind of does all of them. I mean, yes, in South Africa, you get gold with uranium, but to have copper and silver and uranium, the only other one that does it is Olympic Dam. So, you know, is the geology that kind of geology, in which case we need to have a look down deep to find out what it is down there. Yeah, I hope you can follow in the, the footsteps of uh, Olympic Dam then. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, with ESG being uh, obviously a major um, topic in the mining industry, um, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about um, the community relations in each of the countries that you operate in. Yeah, uh, we do a lot um, on this. Uh, the, the first part is communication um, with all of them. And uh, the, I think the second part of that is recognize that each community is different. Do not take a rubber stamp from a corporate office and try and apply it to everyone because they're all completely different jurisdictions culturally and in, in every single way. So if you look at, start with Zambia, which is probably the more advanced of all of them, we've got a whole series of little villages. Uh, I mean, villages we classify from six houses up to 100 and something houses. We've got three chiefs. So with them, we've tended to work very closely on water, access to water. A lot of them were just trying to get water out of the rivers. And when you've ever seen 
you know, the, even in the middle of the dry season when young girls are digging trenches down into the riverbed to try and access water and they're surrounded by goats and donkeys, you realize this is not going to be good, end up well. And just by adding a water borehole, you cut up 90% of the waterborne diseases in one go. So that's been a real target for us has been water. Um, education has been definitely one of those things that we push very hard for, providing access to infrastructure because the Zambians have a very good system of making sure the teachers can get to there. And it's a more populous country, so getting teachers in is easier. Uh, clinics has been another area for us, just making sure the clinics are, are, are good buildings and, and can be manned and have power, uh, which are also quite important. But we liaise with the chiefs all the time. So, you know, we, we don't just go off and do things because we feel it's the right thing. We sit down with the local communities and say, well, what, you know, what do you need? What do you want? And then we figure out what we want to pay for. And then where the ministry has to be involved, you call the ministry in um, and, and look at that as well. The other things we've been look, we do is, is grain supply for planting. Uh, I mean, the weather has been up and down like crazy. So some years they're getting more maize than they know what to do with. And then other periods, they get nothing coming out. So we try and help with that. Uh, we are currently looking at a program of uh, chain, trying to split the crops uh, and put legumes in as well. Um, because they tend to require less water. So we're trying to kind of start a program on education between maize and legumes uh, to try and s diversify the crop growth going through. Um, Marley is, is completely different. Marley is actually very self-sufficient. In fact, we actually struggle to spend our SG budget there because whenever we go in, they're kind of like, we don't need anything. We're okay. Uh, so we're there. We've tended to support the school, the clinic again. Uh, more recently, we've done a lot of work on agriculture. Uh, we've brought in uh, groups to train um, to key the, the ladies' commune on their farming. Uh, and more recently, we've started a whole apiary thing. Uh, we've been training the, the young men on beehives um, and have provided them beehives. So they naturally would normally go out and just try and get wild honey, but now they can do it themselves. But on the back of that, because you've got the wax, you've got candles and soaps and all sorts of things can come out of that. So trying to create a mini industry going there as well uh, and provide work for people. So, And then Niger, as I said, it's historically mainly been water. I mean, literally, there's nothing. So when you kind of see the distances that people have to go to get water, uh, you realize that's got to be the target. And then more recently, we've been focusing on ensuring schools, school buildings have been updated. Um, and on top of that, we're now starting this new program to try and get a, a longer term education program going. Okay. Um, and as a conclusion, just wondered what um, your main, I suppose your main focus is over the next 12 to 18 months across, obviously, the different um, projects that you're involved yeah. in. Yeah. So obviously, Maduella is all about getting Maduella finished on the PFS, getting it financed and hopefully get it into construction, but starting in 2023. So that's Maduella for us, working strongly with the government on that. Uh, Matanga is kind of get that infill drilling done. Um, get whatever met test work needs to be done to get us by the end of next year in a position we can just go into the engineering part of the feasibility study for that. And then uh, Falea is uh, drilling down into these interesting targets to try and kind of get a better understanding geologically of what we've got so we can define a strategy for it. Uh, where does it fit within GovX? Does it not? Uh, and if not, then how do we deal with it? Yeah. Daniel, really appreciate your time. Um, give us an overview of um, GoVX, and it seems you've uh, it seems you're really busy, obviously, across three different um, projects. So, um, if our audience wants to reach out to you, 
and they've got any questions around any of the projects or obviously GoVX, um, how can they go about doing that? And are you across any social media platforms? Uh, I personally am not on any social media <laughs> platforms. I'd probably go back to my age more than anything else. Um, um, but yeah, you can either get me at info at govx.com or directly on Daniel M at govx.com. Okay. Um, and obviously you can look, look at your uh, website as well. And I'm sure oh, absolutely. There, there's going to be some contact details on there. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you've got more general ones, then info is the best way because then my my whole team can deal with things on that. Yeah. One. Yeah. No worries. Um, really appreciate your time again. Um, and those that are listening, um, Obviously, GoVX have got a lot of exciting things happening across three three different jurisdictions, um, across a range of commodities. But obviously, uranium is probably what they're more known for. So um, appreciate if you can um, share share this episode amongst other people in the industry, um, also friends and family that may be interested in the mining sector or may be interested in maybe investing. So really appreciate your continued support. Um, in sharing and liking these episodes, whether you're listening to it on the podcast or whether you're listening to it on the YouTube channel. Appreciate it. You can like and share just below. Um, Daniel, um, hopefully we can get you on the podcast uh, next year sometime with, uh, with more, some more updates, um, obviously across those three projects. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Appreciate yeah. it. No worries. And thank you for listening. Um, and until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.